Good morning. Welcome to The Briefing. It's Tuesday the 22nd of July. Later in the show, we're going to brief you on allegations that Russian hackers have been stealing COVID-19 research. I think it's outrageous and reprehensible that the Russian government is engaged in this activity. That story in just a moment. First, Jan Fran is here to talk through the big stories of the day. Good morning, Tom. The wait to find out about JobKeeper and JobSeeker is nearly over. So the Prime Minister is expected to unveil the new package today. Uh, But the News Corp and Nine newspapers are already reporting some of the key details. Yeah, JobKeeper will be extended from September till March next year. But the payments will be broken up into two tiers. The top tier will fall from $1,500 a fortnight to $1,200 for full-time workers. And the bottom tier will largely be for part-time workers and casuals. But we don't know the amount yet. Yeah, that's job keeper. Now, job seeker will continue through to March as well. It is expected to be reduced, but not all the way back to pre-pandemic levels of $40 a day. So there's 5 million Australians who are either on JobKeeper or JobSeeker. It's quite a fair number there. And I think on Thursday, we're going to find out more about just how our economy is coping. In New South Wales, coronavirus cases have hit a three-month high with a person in their 30s now in intensive care. The next few weeks are critical. Please avoid large crowds. Please think think twice about going into any place which has crowds in it, even when you're socially distancing. That was New South Wales Premier Gladys Berejiklian there. Yesterday, there were 20 new cases in New South Wales. Now, the good news is that they were all from known outbreaks, uh, like the Crossroads Hotel and also the Batemans Bay Soldiers Club. Yeah, and the number of new cases in Victoria fell to 275 but they're not getting too excited about a trend there. I'm still closely following that situation. Today is also the first day of the inquiry into the state's hotel quarantine debacle, uh, which heard that every single case in Victoria could be linked back to that scandal. There's also a debate now in New South Wales, Jan, um, about a planned Black Lives Matter protest next week. And the New South Wales Police Commissioner Mick Fuller said that those activists are playing Russian roulette with millions of lives by going ahead with that. Yeah, it's a tough situation. I think it's obviously an ongoing issue for the people that care about that issue. Um, I just think New South Wales is at a critical point. I'm feeling a lot more stressed today than I was yesterday, and I hope that doesn't continue, but I fear it might. Yeah, I think when the first round of Black Lives Matter protests happen, um, people were feeling a lot more confident about the pandemic. Now they're not. Exactly. And a major development on a potential COVID-19 vaccine, uh, which Oxford Uni researchers are calling hugely promising. Yes. So the trial involves over a thousand people. It's been running since April. Um, Half of those people were injected with a genetically engineered virus pulled from chimps, um, which is pretty similar to COVID-19. Not exactly the same, but pretty similar. Yeah, it's pretty complex. But basically they found that this vaccine is safe and that it's producing neutralising antibodies that block infection and causing a reaction in our T-cells, which are the white blood cells that fight off viruses. Very good explanation there for someone who admittedly hated biology biology in high school. Look, the next step is to work out whether it does work on the novel coronavirus. But if this is any indication... Uh, the British government has bought 100 million doses already already of this particular vaccine. So I guess they think it's promising. Well, they're getting ready to roll in case it goes through stage three. Uh, in April, we spoke to an Australian academic who was actually taking part in that trial 
at Oxford. Uh, he was one of the first two people injected. His name was Dr. Edward O'Neill. In terms of whether or not other vaccines might be more successful, I think more horses in the race, the better. We don't, we can't really afford to waste months because that's more and more people dying. Yeah, and that trial he's part of is in phase one and two. We're just talking about it there. Um, there are over 200 trials going on around the world. And the American Center for Disease Control has said that once any trial gets to stage three, they'll already start mass producing that vaccine so that if it passes stage three, they've already got it ready to roll and they don't have to wait more months to start production. Yeah, go scientists. Can I just declare that any and all scientists in this moment are extremely sexy? We love you. (laughs) We're rooting for you. All right, catch you tomorrow, Jen. Annika Smethos is here. We're talking cybersecurity. This cybersecurity thing, it's a, its a bit like carbon monoxide. You can't see it, but it's pretty deadly if it goes wrong. Now, that's a pretty powerful metaphor for the risk posed by cyber attacks. Annika, I've got to admit that sometimes when I hear about cybersecurity and we, and we hear the warnings that my eyes glaze over a little bit because it, it just doesn't feel real. I totally agree, Tom. If someone came into my house and stole something, I'd be really, really cranky. But when it happens online or that I think somebody might have been in my email or sending me fake news, it doesn't seem to bother me as much. But I know that the risk is real. Yeah, well, we hear it from experts time and time again. And of course, there was the, the situation in the US 2016 election where we had Russian troll factories creating fake news and sowing misinformation into that campaign. So we're going to dig deeper into cybersecurity in this briefing topic. What do we really have to fear? Based on advice provided to me by our cyber experts, Australian organisations are currently being targeted by a sophisticated state-based cyber actor. So that was the Prime Minister last month, who, side by side with the Defence Minister, Linda Reynolds, gave us a very strong warning about cyber attacks taking place in Australia. There is no doubt that malicious cyber activity is increasing in frequency, scale, in sophistication and also in its impact. This activity harms Australia's national security and also our economic interests. So along with that warning last month here in Australia, last week there was a very concerning development in the UK. They've accused the Russian hacking group of trying to steal COVID-19 research. Here's the British Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab. We're absolutely confident that the Russian intelligence agencies were uh, engaged in a cyber attack on research and development uh, efforts and organisations in this country and internationally, uh, with a view either to sabotage or to uh, profit uh, from the R&D that was taking place. So that's clearly a very concerning allegation. So let's find out more about what harm these attacks could actually do and what we really need to worry about. I still call this the greatest existential threat we're going to face as a community, and I say that in the same year as really horrible bushfires and obviously COVID-19. So that was Alastair McGibbon, who until last year was the lead advisor to the government on cybersecurity. He was the head of the Cybersecurity Centre at the Australian Signals Directorate. Now he works in the private sector at CyberCX. Alastair, thanks for joining us. We'll get to your greatest existential threat warning in just a moment. But first, what do you make of the alleged Russian hack on UK COVID-19 research? Well, we know that various nations are very keen to get access to various bits of medical research, particularly around COVID-19, because there's a lot of political benefit that will flow to them for doing that and, and economic benefit too. A lot of states also base a lot of their IP on stealing other people's IP as well. And and they tend to be the one-party states, and that's how they innovate. And uh, so stealing 
research is not new. Um, you'd think it was pretty dastardly trying to steal COVID research, of course, because stealing it's one thing, but you can also misstep when you go to steal uh, this type of thing. Uh, and that could cause harm, of course, to the research. And, and that would be devastating to the, to the global economy and, and to people all around the world. When they announced the hack, the UK's National Cyber Security Centre singled out a, a Russian group called APT29, otherwise known as Cozy Bear, which is a great name for a Russian hacking group. What can you tell us about Cozy Bear? We'll start with the names. Uh, yeah, the, the, the names get given by various uh, security research companies. And so obviously the bear tends to be the Russians. Of course, you've got panda bear that tend to be the Chinese groups. These groups are affiliated with the nation, uh, with the intelligence agencies of Russia. And in this case, I I believe it's the SVR. You don't know too much about these groups publicly. Uh, Various companies will publish it. And that's what these Western intelligence agencies will then refer to. Remembering, of course, that nations around the world, particularly, again, the one-party states, will often use, in quotes, private companies to to carry out some of their work. So drawing that link, this concept of attribution, uh, which you'll often hear politicians when they're pushed to name countries will say, attribution's tough online, actually proving who's behind the keyboard uh, and on whose direction they're working can be tough. So if you come out and and actually, in this case, like the the British, the Americans and the Canadians have done, actually naming a group in a country, that's a big thing. You talk about things being tough online, and I guess it's hard for people to relate. You know, if if Russians broke into a lab and, and stole the vaccine, then that would be different to them going in and having a snoop online in terms of how we understand it. Another area where that's relevant is elections. We hear about election interference. Now, a lot of people out there might say, I'm an independent voter, I read the paper, I make my own decision. So when we hear about hackers interfering in elections, what are they actually doing? Well, it's a great question, Annika, right? It's a spectrum. It starts with, at, at the at the furthest edge, that well-informed voter you're talking about. Um, the information that they rely upon can be manipulated. So, What we saw in the US presidential elections in 2016 was Russian groups flaming dissent. So they would throw in information that would uh, get people on the right excited, and they'd throw in information to get the people on the left excited. Now, generally in politics, people get excited anyway, but the concept of driving misinformation and therefore debate uh, is one way that we that we certainly know now that various governments will participate in elections. Elections they're not meant to participate in, by the way, right through to the potential that groups could actually affect the outcomes of an election by changing a vote count. So could they decrease the public's confidence in the outcome? Now, you might still go back to ballot papers and recount, but what happens if on the night a winner is declared only to be found a few weeks later that they weren't actually the winner. Uh, You can see what that would do to economies. So this hacking and uh, interference in elections can go from information to potentially affecting the outcome, even if it's only in the short term. That really affects a democracy. You can imagine that since 2016, there's been quite a heightened awareness in liberal Western democracies for, for what effect that would have on their communities. The most important thing that our country has and other Western democracies have is their democracy. 
That's the, that is the crown jewels of our society. So I always said that it's Australians' job to screw up their elections. It's not someone else's job to do it for <laughs> us. So, you know, if Australians want to vote a particular way, if political parties want to behave the way they do, that's their right. It's just not the right of a single party state to be interfering in a democracy's process. As someone, you know, who who knows very little about this space, um, it's not a specialty for me, when I hear phrases like that or when I hear, you know, the Defence Minister speaking in June talking about malicious cyber activity increasing in frequency, scale, sophistication, I wonder whether that really affects our day-to-day lives and 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 what the examples are of these actions really doing damage to our societies. And clearly, you know, the 2016 US election is now a really strong, tangible example, and we're going to hear more about the UK election. Is it just about that dissonance and undermining democracy, or is there even more specific threats we need to be concerned about? Well, let me start, Tom, by saying I I am no climate change denier. So when I say it's one of the greatest existential threats. Um, I'm not saying it's the only one, <laughs> and I'm certainly not saying it's where we should put all of our effort. It's certainly, though, something where we should put a significant part of our effort. Why? Yes, absolutely, because if our democracy is impacted, that does impact the daily lives. Now, history will will judge and conclude whether or not the Russians were successful in impacting the outcome of the US elections. Whatever it was, they got what they got. And so we'll leave that to the side. But it's existential in other ways as well, Tom, because if we started with that COVID-19 research question uh, that was the first one you asked, what happens if while the Russians and other countries, by the way, were in there, they tripped over the virtual power cord and they actually disabled the research functions in that facility? What happens if, therefore, that research was destroyed? What if those same countries were sitting inside a power grid, banks, water distribution, a whole range of other functionality? I mean, we, 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 along with other countries, are extraordinarily connected. That means, therefore, that if someone sits in those systems and they accidentally bring them down, that will end life. There's no doubt that people will die if hospital systems are blocked. It is both in terms of how you impact the very fabric of our society, the crown jewels, our democracy, right through to the very functioning of the systems that we rely upon, not just for our jobs, but for our very lives. So this cybersecurity thing, it's a a bit like carbon monoxide. You can't see it, but it's pretty deadly if it goes wrong. We do need to invest in it. So I do applaud the government. Uh, And you'd expect me to, I'm a government type of guy, right? (laughs) But I do applaud the government when it comes out and says, we've got to do more when it comes to cybersecurity. What I'd also say to you, Tom, is when the government comes out and says that, people will think that they're dog whistling or they're doing something to, to, to distract people. And I'd say they're not. And here's why. We have the benefit in this country that our intelligence agencies and law enforcement agencies are not sitting inside our computers the vast bulk of the time. They're actually run, owned and operated by the private sector. And the only way the government can actually influence that is either through regulation, and I think we'll see more of that over time, by the way, more requirements on systems owners to to do more to protect systems, or just to send messages out to say, look, you've got to raise your defences because there are bad people out there who could cause harm. And and we should do that, by the way, uh, Tom and Annika, not just against nation states because they're one thing, but we also know that criminals are particularly pernicious online and they 
definitely don't care about consequences of their actions. So while I worry about nation states, I worry just as much, sometimes more, about criminals. Prisons are full of people who don't care about what harm they do. That's really bad when it comes to computer systems. When we see state-based actors do these sort of things, is it an act of war? You know, if we had people from another country land on our shores and start mapping out where our hospital system was and somehow, you know, turn off the power, we would see that as a really aggressive act. So how do we characterise it when it's online? Espionage has been around for a long time. This all comes down to what we'd say capability followed by intent. So are there various nations capable of doing this? Absolutely, of which China, Russia and Iran and North Korea are in the usual bunch that you'd talk about. And then you ask about what the intent is. It's it's likely, of course, the intent was espionage. They wanted to steal uh, intellectual property. Those those economies tend to be fueled by uh, that theft of our industrial secret source. Um, they also want to know what our strategic intent is. They want to know why we're making certain decisions. So it's likely this was an intelligence exercise, and that's not warfare. Of course, you need to be in those systems to cause harm if you're if your intent changes to causing harm. So it can be a precursor for harm. I don't think that was the intent in this case. These aren't warlike acts, but they're certainly not acts of friendly people. So we do need to come to a conclusion as a country that there are countries, we, we shouldn't be naive, there are countries that don't have our best interests at heart. So if I'm just a regular Aussie worker, perhaps I've got a Gmail account, a bit of the social medias, maybe I bank online, but I don't run a business online, I don't work for the government, I guess, how do you explain the risk to me? What what risk could I have that somebody hacks into my email and what can I do to keep it safe? Look, most nations aren't that interested in you as an individual, but mostly Hunters out there are targeted by criminals who will exchange your information for cash. Just think about it like robbing your house. If they can get cash, they'll take it. If they can't get cash off your dining room table, they'll steal things that they can parlay into cash. But from a nation state point of view, every citizen in this country is impacted because they're customers of or citizens of um, the systems that are potentially impacted. So that was Alastair McGibbon, the former National Cybersecurity Advisor to the government, uh, now working in the private sector for CyberCX. And at that point about destabilising democracy with disinformation, that's probably the threat that worries me the most in the cyberspace. Absolutely. Look, so many people get their information online now and maybe don't have the ability to filter through as much and be able to pick up on maybe disinformation or at a real extreme fake news. All right, that's it for today. Thanks so much for listening. Tomorrow on The Briefing, what's behind the recent spate of shark attacks? Speak to you then. A Podcast One production.